The Podcast of Plastic is an initiative by the Break Free from Plastic movement. Hashtag Break Free from Plastic envisions a future free from plastic pollution. BFFP promotes common values of environmental protection and social justice. We acknowledge that to bring systemic change, we need to tackle plastic pollution across the whole plastics value chain, from extraction to disposal. Welcome to the Podcast of Plastic, where we talk about the problem with plastics and offer new perspectives on it. I feel like it's always being discussed during the tail end of the problem. Like, how are we going to manage the litter? Or where do all the plastics of the world that have been used end up? So here in this podcast, we want to serve the same dish, but on a different platter. A different plate, maybe. Maybe ceramic. Maybe stoneware. But definitely not single-use plastic. This is our first episode. I'm Antoinette Toss, grateful to be your host, Goodwill Ambassador for the United Nations Environment Program, and founder of the nonprofit Cora. Some of our work in plastics include our partnership with a UNEP global campaign, Clean Seas, in 2018, National Geographic's Planet or Plastic in 2019, and our current program with USAID, Clean Cities, Blue Ocean. This podcast is inspired by the Emmy-nominated documentary, The Story of Plastic. If you haven't seen The Story of Plastic, please do so. It's basically a montage of plastic's life on Earth, depicting how they are pretty much immortal. But there are ways to get rid of them, and that's why you need to watch this film. For more information on The Story of Plastic and Break Free from Plastic, go to www.breakfreefromplastic.org. One thing that's almost as common as the sight of plastics around us are the proposed solutions to the plastics problem. When you scroll through your feed, you probably see a lot of posts about all kinds of stuff we can do with plastic waste or materials we can replace plastic with. In this episode, we shall go through them one by one as our running time permits. We shall pick them apart and discover if they are as genuine as genuine as solutions can be. Earthlings, we are going to dive deep into plastic pollution and separate the real solutions from the false ones. But just what are false solutions? False solutions are what we thought to be helpful, but don't really address the plastic pollution problem at the source. Most of the time, they're just stopgap measures that delay the inevitable and sometimes cause new forms of pollution and even pose new risks. It's not your fault, my fault, nor any other humble citizen's fault, most especially vulnerable communities. These false solutions are often presented so well and packaged so shiny and sparkly that it's hard to believe that they are false. I'm saying they are marketed so well and made to sound like a legit solution that we, of course, think so. Again, I want to tell you that it's not your fault. We are not here to place the blame on our listeners or each other. And we are not here to play the blame game either. We're here to bring to light what's been kept in the dark. Details of solutions not in plain sight that we often miss. We're going to talk about supposed solutions that need clarifying. But more importantly, we are here to talk about realistic and inclusive pathways forward that empower and place the plight of people at the forefront of these solutions. Bioplastics. It must be good if it has the word bio in it. 
Let's start with a very obvious solution: bioplastics. The question is, if we replace all the plastics in the world with bioplastics, would the problem actually be solved? Is it as easy as simply burying them or tossing them away, and voila, they just disintegrate and disappear? Ah,、uh, not quite. Not all bioplastics turn into worm food when you add them to your compost. Some bioplastics actually need industrial-level facilities for decomposition, which poses challenges because most communities do not have the infrastructure and systems to manage the processing of these materials. Plus, there are a lot of confusing things in circulation about bioplastics: bioplastics, biodegradable plastics, bio-based plastics, oxo-biodegradable plastics. Are they all the same thing, or are they all different with different ways to manage them too? Is there a truth to it, or is it wishful thinking, or is it a work in progress? I'm honored to introduce Marian Ledesma, a zero waste campaigner from Greenpeace, and it's also so wonderful to note that Marian actually started her journey with Greenpeace as a volunteer, and now the path of her life has turned into her actually working and living her life dedicated to these missions. Marian, thank you so much for being with us. We're so happy to have you. Hey Tony, it's good to be here. Um, great to see you again. Now let's get straight to the point. Marian, can you tell us what are bioplastics? Bioplastics is actually a term that's sometimes used interchangeably for biodegradables, bio-based plastics, compostables, and yeah, it can be confusing because those are three very different things, really. Which is why it's not recommended to be using the term bioplastics. As sort of an umbrella for all these different things, because they have very different characteristics and different ways to manage these kinds of、uh, plastics. For one thing, like biodegradables, they're plastics which degrade under biological actions or biological conditions, and at times they will need industrial composters. They need specific conditions to be able to kickstart that degradation process. Under biodegradables, you also have compostables. That's something completely different because there are certain、uh, requirements to qualify as compostables. Like it's not ecotoxic, or it won't start releasing any potential pollutants、uh, when it starts to degrade. And there's also different definitions of composting, or like how it's being degraded. Is it only in industrial facilities? Can it happen in your backyard? Can it happen at a landfill? And then for Bio-based plastics, which is also under bioplastics, this is the term that's being called for plastics that are made of organic matter. However, they still do need、uh, resources to grow these products, and sometimes some bio-based plastics are mixed with fossil fuels, and in that way, they start behaving just like regular plastic. So it may take decades to degrade for、uh, certain bio-based plastics, and all these different factors make it hard. To have one set、uh, management or treatment for these types of plastic as well. Now, Marian, after everything that you've explained, though, would you say that there is an acceptable type of bioplastic? And if yes,、uh, how easy would it be to dispose of? Do we simply bury them as well, or compost them, or is it still going to be a specific rigid recycling process? The issue with bioplastics really is that they're still designed to be disposable, like regular plastic. And there are bioplastics that 
are made of purely organic matter and may degrade in like home composting setups or backyard settings. So they might be somewhat better, but they're they're really not. They still don't change our problem of overconsumption and that throwaway culture that's at the root of the, our plastic problem. What we need is a slow circular economy to, to slow down that input, that usage of new resources and also slow down the impacts on the planet, on our climate during that production phase. There you have it, plastic fanatics. With the different processes required for recycling and disposal, Greenpeace does not consider bioplastics as an effective solution to plastic pollution. Although the concept does provide hope for more ways to innovate, the need for raw materials, biodegradable as they may be, and the challenges that exist to process them properly prove that to reuse, reuse, and reuse what we already have is still the best option. On to the next. bricks turning trash into treasure well now we still have the existing oil-based plastic circulating around the world can we take the current plastic waste and turn it into something useful i'm not talking about cutting them up and making it into art projects like we did in our fourth grade home ed class i'm talking more about eco bricks taking another man's trash and turning it into housing foundation just what are eco bricks You know, cutting up plastics and stuffing them into containers or plastic bottles and made of, you guessed it, plastic. And using them in place of actual bricks in housing or building. Hold up. I mean, I know this sounds great. The idea of turning trash into something useful sounds perfect. Sounds ideal, actually. We can turn them into walls for houses, uh, schools, furniture, roads, anything that we can actually dream of. Maybe even a whole Eiffel Tower made of eco bricks. We can recreate the seven wonders in eco bricks, possibly. Well, good thing that Marion is here to tell us more about it. Marion, could you tell us what are eco bricks and what is your take on this topic? Originally, EcoBricks was a term to use to refer to single-use plastic bottles that were tightly packed with either shredded or small pieces of single-use plastic. Now, there's also a new type of EcoBricks made of uh, discarded plastic, and it utilizes a more complex process wherein plastic is melted and reshaped into bricks for construction or maybe furniture, for example. The thing about EcoBricks really is that it shouldn't be used as a justification for continuing to use single-use plastic. It is, again, another stopgap measure because it doesn't really look towards any of the other stages of plastic pollution. So when you're looking at eco-bricks, you're only trying to deal with the waste that's already there, but it doesn't really address other impacts of plastic pollution. And it also sort of supports and underpins the industry's narrative that plastic pollution is just a litter issue. Similar to recycling, we can sort of try to upcycle or downcycle our way out of this problem. Do you have any other similar solutions or similar false solutions, as you'd mentioned earlier, that seem to use the same concept as eco-bricks that maybe people should yeah. um, also watch out for? As a false solution, I also think of... Um, Eco bricks having parallels to recycling, not in the sense that they are the same concept, but they do have the same outcomes where people have this misconception that plastics turned into eco bricks, they're being put to good use after disposal. So it's all right to keep using plastics. And of course, the industry loves it because 
they can go on business as usual. But the negative outcome would be that it enables the world's addiction to plastics to continue. And it'll keep driving climate change. It'll keep causing all of these impacts. So all in all, all of these uh, false solutions shouldn't really be called solutions any longer because it gives people that impression that they're, they're changing or solving the issue when in reality, it's a false safety net. Well, there you have it, folks. While it can be ideal to utilize eco-bricks to divert single-use plastics and use them for walls and even buildings, the structural integrity of these projects need to greatly be taken into consideration, along with what will be done with these eco-bricks once the structures they were used for are torn down or are renovated in the future. So according to Greenpeace, while eco-bricks serve to be another pathway for waste diversion, it still remains a temporary solution which does not stop the plastic pollution problem at the source. WTF is WTE. So if different ways to divert plastics pose the challenges and barriers we've discussed so far, what else can we do with them? Can we still gather them and turn them into something useful? Can we use the basic principle of clean energy, like dams and wind turbines? Would it be possible to turn waste into energy? Does waste to energy pose a threat to the environment? This is the waste to energy, or WTE, concept. But is this yet a false solution, though? Is WTE actually WTF? Well, I sat down with Yobel Putra from the Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives Asia-Pacific to better understand waste to energy and if this helps us solve our problem with plastics. Hello, Yobel. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me here. It's glad to see you all now. And thank you for being here to answer a question that I feel a lot of people actually have a lot of inquiries about. And they're really wondering, is this a true solution? Now, as we get right to it, can you explain exactly what waste to energy is? Right. I mean, waste to energy, it sounds like a marketing term, right? So just to keep it simple, waste to energy is just another form of waste burning. And it's not referring to any specific technology. It's actually a process that recover energy, but they did not or never tell us about the detail of it. Uh, what other names that we can give to them is actually waste incineration to burn plastic in these waste to energy facilities. Are there toxic implications to these facilities that actually do the incineration or promise waste to energy as a solution to plastic pollution? And as well as the implications of this, not just to the environment, but to the human health as well. Yeah, I mean, people might not have seen waste to energy facility in their lifetime because it's situated in a place that is really far away from big cities. So it's these small local unheard voices that get affected and they cannot really tell the story. So simply that this facility is actually affecting the health of everyone. First, when you burn things, it's only get as good as what you put it in in the first place. So toxic in, toxic out. So when you burn this plastic, or let's say another form of plastic is electronic waste. You have this plastic coating or perhaps casing, right? Those contain PCB, which are highly toxic. And when you burn that, you will expect to get at least the same toxicity level. But the thing is, when you put it in waste to energy facility, it creates this complex chemical reaction, which makes things even worse. And there's a myth that I want to debunk right here. It seems that people 
thing that by burning waste in this facility, you don't need to have a landfill. That's simply not true because you still have a 20 to 30% by week of ashes, toxic ashes. There are studies that reveal microplastic is also there on the ashes. And the finer the particle is, then the longer the travel distance. One study suggested that uh, nanoparticulates can travel as much as 1,000 kilometers. Can you imagine? And then it accumulates in the food chain and somehow you eat it. So it's like a combo wombo of plastic pollution and also waste incineration in one package. So you were saying even when it comes to these incinerators or waste facilities that promise to be able to deliver waste to energy, in the end, they are still putting it back into the environment into the atmosphere because of the microplastics that still exist. I feel like this is something that really needs to be brought attention to and needs to be discussed more. And thank you also for clarifying that this is not a way to reduce the amount of waste that goes to landfills. So it's actually not zero waste after all. Why do you think this has become sort of a thing and more widespread in Asia Pacific? And why do you think people are engaging it in the promise of being zero waste? So the incinerator industry started, I think, in 1950s, 1960s in the U.S. and Europe. And now the U.S. has declined, you know, all of these new facilities. There is no new incinerator are being built since the 2000s. And that's the case for U.S. It's failing. But also in Europe, I think two years ago, the European Commission has stated that incineration should not get any financing policies or you know, subsidies because it's harming the recycling target. It's harming the clean energy and also the carbon budget target for all the EU countries. And that's why they exclude it from their taxonomy for sustainable financing. And it's a strong signal for us in the Asia to not adopt it. They look Asia as a new emerging market. So you can tell that there is a shift of you know, market strategy moving this item from the Western world to the Eastern and Southern part of the world where regulation are weak and also people are not aware of what's the risk in it. And I think there's some sort of colonialism mental, you know, when we see this, oh, this is a European technology, this gotta be good, but it's not. So we are eating those uh, marketing strategy and some of this country in Asia, for example, like mainland China, Singapore, South Korea, Japan, they are promoting this as a great fixes. While most of our countries don't have the budget or legal capacity to anticipate all these toxic pollutants and also financial problems. So that's why I think there's this tension between developing and developed world where we really want to solve the problem, but we copycat everything from the Western world and think it will work. It's not. It's not working. It's failing. So, Yubel, what do you think is a better pathway forward, more effective, more efficient? And of course, this is really telling more people that waste to energy is not the pathway to a sustainable future. Right. So I'll start with waste to energy is something that wastes you know, of energy. So it's literally wasting our time or budget or money to do something that doesn't really solve the root of the problem, which is how do we consume? How do we produce things? That's clear for the first point. And secondly, we need to know what we are dealing, what, what's the waste looks like in Asia. In Asia uh, and most of developing countries, most of the waste are organic, food waste. Uh, 60% of it are wet. So why do we burn it? 
it's better to you know convert it to feed people feed animals feed the soil so we can have more yield to solve this food crisis and other things rather than burn it and lost it forever so that can be done by composting and other simple treatment which are not costly everyone can do that and the other 40% most of them are recyclables sure not all plastic are recyclable but most of it now we can recycle it because the problem is not with us as consumer it's with the designer of the product so the designer need to find a way how do they want to deal with it it's not an easy answer but it's doable first demand our government to do the right thing we are voting them so we have the right to make them choose the right thing for us waste of energy is waste of energy it's you know increasing the carbon emission which also create bigger problem for us in Asia where climate crisis is really you know something that we feel almost every day and this is something that we need to talk to also with our uh, younger people because they will inherit the problem if we invest in waste to energy but also they will inherit the good things if we invest in zero waste in recycling in organic management so let's just put our voices together and tell people tell the government that we want something better something good and it's already there it's already happening zero waste is not a dream it's happening now in all parts of the world we just need decision maker to scale this up with their goodwill thank you so much yobel putra from gaia asia pacific there you have it folks wte or waste to energy is a false solution waste of energy as yobel so cleverly put it Greenwashing. Am I being green-baited by brands? Okay, let's relax a little. Bioplastics, eco-bricks, waste to energy all seem like a legislator's concern. Like it's too big of a system for me to even organize. That's what you must be thinking, right? Well, you know, you and I, we are consumers, and people truly want to be better and do better. But how can we make better choices if the better options don't exist or are not accessible to most citizens, especially vulnerable communities? People want to know, what can I do? Something that I can manage realistically that's accessible. And just which brands are truly green and which brands should we avoid? Now I want to talk about another real solution that we can readily execute that is our choice to support brands that remain accountable to the transition to a sustainable and circular future and that operate with the good of people in the planet at their core. Sadly though some brands do engage in what is called green baiting or green washing. But what does this mean exactly? To tell us more about it, we have Nusa Urbansic from the Changing Markets Foundation, which works on solutions to sustainability challenges. Hi Nusa, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, nice to be with you. Thank you for having me. We'll go straight into the questions. Now first we'd like to know Nusa, what exactly is green washing? So green washing is a term that was invented in 1980s by an environmental journalist who was, you know, was staying in a hotel and he was asked to reuse his towels while at the same time hotel was destroying the environment. So he invented this term green washing and it means that companies use misleading, vague or false claims in order to present their product, services or their brand as more sustainable than it actually is. 
Could you provide us with some concrete examples of greenwashing? And I know these are things that we probably see all around us all the time so that people can get an idea on what exactly this is and how to catch it. Yes, absolutely. So, for example, it's oil companies claiming to be investing into renewables while 98% of their investment still goes into extracting fossil fuels. It is, for example, fashion brands that claim that their materials are sustainable or preferred or somehow better for the environment without really saying how. And they're all over, all around us every day in most of the decisions that we're making. Can you give us your opinion on why do you think they really heavily invest in greenwashing itself rather than just really transitioning into a sustainable pathway forward? People want to do good things. So they mostly say 80-90% of people say they're willing to buy from more sustainable brands, that they're willing to even pay more for more sustainable products. It's also this thing to kind of give us like the false feeling of security that, you know, they are doing something that we shouldn't worry, you know, that, yeah, that things are okay as they are, that, you know, solutions are about to happen. And I think the main problem with greenwashing is it's not just, you know, a harmless practice. It's actually a massive societal placebo. You know, it makes us think that, you know, good things are happening, that we don't have to worry too much, that, you know, by consuming the right type of products, we're contributing to the solutions to all our environmental and social problems. You mentioned that a lot of companies are engaging in greenwashing. And the question is, how can the public identify if corporations or brands or certain campaigns are actually green baiting or greenwashing? And with that, I actually do have a connecting question as well. Are there also steps that we can take to ensure that we are supporting the companies that are providing concrete solutions forward? You know, I believe that this is something that the legislators should be doing because it's a lot of work for a single consumer to try to check every time whether claims are verified, you know. From um, fashion brands that we investigated, we've seen that a lot of them say how they're using recycled materials, but when you scratch the surface, you see all these recycled materials is PET bottles. And those PET bottles, you know, we could reduce them or we could recycle them back into bottles. Like there's no reason why they should be recycled into clothes, which then end up at incineration or landfill because they can no longer be recycled one more time. Things that look good at the surface, but then once you start to understand the issue a little bit more and you realize that actually, you know, this is like a one-way street to landfill or incineration, they have increased the use of virgin polyester by two, three times. How do we recognize greenwashing and how do we know which companies are not doing this? It's it's really difficult. So I don't have like a clear answer, right? But like in some countries you have organizations that actually look at what companies are doing. They kind of compare their merits. They look at their ownership structures. They look at whether or not they're paying tax. So in the UK where I live, this is an organization called Ethical Consumer. So they do this kind of work for you and then you can kind of, you know, look at their database and see, okay, these are the good companies that are really trying to do their best. They're basically paying taxes, they're treating their workers fairly and they're doing stuff for the environment. But I'm conscious that this does not exist in every country and the brands, especially the big multinational brands, they're really good at how they will sell their products. Uh, Yeah, maybe a good idea is also, you know, if you're buying from local producers where you kind of know where things are coming from and you can actually ask these questions directly. 
that is also one of the good strategies, I think. Thank you so much. That was a lot of valuable information. And there are a few points that I really want to point out and bring back quickly. And one was that you mentioned recycling. So we do want to clarify that recycling is never an excuse to continue producing virgin plastics. This is just a pathway forward so that we can do something with what's already out there, which is a whole lot. But this is not an excuse to keep going and producing more. And then this is also sort of deceiving when something is recycled into something that cannot be recycled again. And even if it says it's recycled, we still need to look at what will be the endpoint of each product? What will happen to it when we're done using it? So about the accreditations of companies and us doing the research, I feel like that is truly so powerful. We can't just rely on the information that is being fed to us out there because a lot of it can be false and a lot of it can be deceiving and misleading. And at the end of the day, it is our duty and responsibility to do the background checks and to do the research on the products that we purchase and use. Not just for the plight of the planet, but of course for our own health. So thank you for pointing those out. Now, what do you think is the best pathway into really seeing a circular and sustainable transition, not just for small businesses, but mostly for global brands and corporations? Yeah, I think we cannot rely on them to do good things for the planet voluntarily. And we have relied for way too long on this voluntary approach, you know, trusted them on their words that they're trying their best. And at the same time, they have massively increased unsustainable practices, like the plastic production has gone through the roof. They're flooding Asia with sachets that are a complete nightmare and they will end their, in their environment forever. And we really need legislation. We need, um, we need local governments, you know, to take this issue really seriously and introduce things like extended producer responsibility. I mean, we know what the real solutions are. It's about reducing plastic. It's about real recyclability. It's about reuse systems. But these kind of things are always more difficult than just pumping out single-use plastic that, you know, gets used for a few seconds and that ends up in environment forever. So I think we need legislation and consumers, us as consumers, we can demand this legislation from governments and we can make sure that companies don't get away with uh, greenwashing so easily. Thank you so much, Nusa. It was truly so wonderful to have you with us today. And the two top ways to create change. Number one is systemic change, legislation and policy. And of course, just as important, business unusual, as we like to call it. Thank you very much once again, Nusa Urbansich from the Changing Markets Foundation. And there you have it, folks. We need to be careful when supporting brands that seem to be jumping on the green bandwagon and use our purchasing power wisely. There are global companies taking huge strides to stay accountable with their commitment to a sustainable future. But it is our duty to take steps to do the research about the products that we purchase, where they came from, what they were made of, how they were made who made them, and if that purchase truly helps empower communities in need. How am I supposed to do this on my own? So what can we do? Planeteers, we're not pushing anyone to overhaul their lifestyles topsy-turvy. 
Just being here and listening to this podcast is already a huge start. Exposing ourselves to the truth, the real problem behind plastics. And we are throwing in a bonus. We shall be leaving you with the questions you can ask yourself to identify if a solution presented to you is genuine or false. These questions are all based on Trash Heroes Toolkit. You know those BuzzFeed quizzes you take where you end up with points and then by the end of it, you find out which Disney princess you are? Well, that's kind of how Trash Heroes Toolkit works. But instead of learning if you're more like Ariel or Belle, you find out if you're looking at a false solution or not. Be sure to check that out at www.trashhero.org. So let's start with the more obvious questions you need to ask yourself. Does it have a negative impact on the environment, socially, economically? Well, these are automatic red flags. Let's listen to what Seema has to say about this. So the social impact question relates to things that affect our health and our well-being, you know, that affect people. Right. So the thing that we're looking at, um, let's say incineration, right? This is also used quite a lot locally in Asia. Anytime you burn plastic, you have toxic byproducts that make people ill, right? It causes all kinds of problems for people's health. So the economic aspects of any solution will be looking at how it affects income, right? So a negative impact will make life harder financially for the community. If you're in a touristy area, you know, people are not going to want to come and visit because, you know, they, people generally are aware of the, the dangers of um, breathing in this air around incineration plants. So there are a lot of effects economically to that area from having this full solution. Remember, these are questions you can ask yourself when presented with a new solution to plastic waste. Real solutions do exist, but not all solutions are genuine. Some may be posing as them, but merely be false solutions, as we have debunked in this episode. This pilot episode has been eye-opening for me, and I hope for you too. Now, I know after all you've heard, you may think that the future is bleak, especially when we have debunked a lot of the solutions that before this conversation seemed genuine. Well, have no fear, for there are real solutions that we shall be sharing with you in the coming episodes. So in summary, we debunked false solutions to the plastics problem. These are seemingly workable solutions but are problematic because they do not address the problem at the source, and they derail existing efforts to curb plastic production. What we want is to slow down plastic production to a halt and reduce plastic use so that we can take pollution down to zero. See what I did there? <laughs> For more information on this, check out www.breakfreefromplastic.org. The Podcast of Plastic is a continued effort to spread the truth on the plastics crisis as seen in the story of plastic. We invite you to watch the documentary and host your own online screening for the people in your life. The great news is that the story of plastic is available for free on Discovery's YouTube channel. Thank you for joining me for this truth bomb-ridden episode. I hope this jumpstarts your reusable habits and lifestyle and helps fuel your mission to continue the fight against waste of all forms. 
Please tune in to our next episode, Single-Use Sachets, There is No Such Thing as a Way. This is Antoinette Toss signing off for now, and together, let's be a part of the solution to help beat plastic pollution. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia, the hosts of the program, or other programs of the network. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.